This afternoon, brothers and sisters, we may consider in the preaching the death and the burial of our Savior as well as his descent into hell and what that all entails. And in connection with that confession in Lord's Day 16, we turn first in Holy Scripture to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, where we will read the verses 45 through 61. And then we'll turn ahead to the gospel, to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans chapter 6. But first, Matthew 27, where we begin reading God's word at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. We turn ahead to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, where we'll read the first 14 verses of that chapter. And after hearing from God's word, we'll sing in response Psalm 16, stanzas 1, 3, and 4. Romans 6. 
beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of our God as we read it from Matthew 27 and Romans 6. And then also what the church has summarized and confessed concerning the gospel in Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 16, which you find beginning on page 530 of the Book of Praise. And here the church learns to echo the word of God in the following way. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. 
why is there added, he descended into hell. In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. After we've heard from God's word this afternoon, we'll sing in response Psalm 30, stances 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the ancient world, businessmen often wrote on the front page of their accounting books these words, memento mori. That's a Latin phrase which in English means, remember your mortality. It was supposed to be a reminder that life is not really only about the business of the day. And it's somewhat reminiscent of what King David wrote in Psalm 39, verse 4 and 5. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as mere breath. The point is that the span of our life in the spectrum of eternity is but a breath. Though we don't really often like to think about that. We don't really like to remember our mortality. We would prefer to avoid the thought of death until it's forced upon us. Yet, obviously, death is a reality, something each of us will face should the Lord Jesus not first return. And that's why it is important that we do give some thought to it. And that's why, with no less than five questions and answers, Lord's Day 16 has much to say on the topic. It's one of the biggest Lord's Days in the Catechism, and that's not because the Catechism wants to prolong the matter of death, but it's because God's Word has so many treasures to teach us on the matter. Lord's Day 16 is concerned with Christ's death. Christ had to die, and Christ was buried to prove that he died. The Catechism, as we're going to see, has all sorts of wonderful things to say about that. But it doesn't stop there. No, by his death, Christ has transformed death for all who believe. In other words, as we're going to see, there are ample benefits through Christ's death for our death, 
also our daily life. And so the Catechism deals with this fourth article of the Apostles' Creed in a very personal and comforting way. It confronts each of us with death, and at the same time it confirms us in the only comfort in life and in death. The Lord Jesus Christ, by suffering both temporal and everlasting death, became our Savior from death, spiritual and eternal. That gives the believer peace when he thinks about the last enemy. So I'm going to bring to you God's word the following way this afternoon. Christ's death fills us with comfort as we follow him to the grave. And we see, and we get answers rather, in the catechism to questions such as why Christ had to die, why Christ had, was buried, and why Christ descended into hell. So first, why did Christ have to die? The Catechism introduces the matter of death by asking about Christ's death. Why did he have to humble himself even unto death? It's a question that has a very real sense of bewilderment to it. Did it really have to come to this? The Catechism wants to get us thinking how awful death must have appeared to Christ as he neared that moment. And of course you can see that throughout the gospel accounts. His very soul shuddered in the presence of death. Just think for example when he was face to face with the horror of death after Lazarus died. John 11 33 and 34 records that when he saw Mary and the Jews with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled, and he wept. This and other deaths were to him a foretaste of his own death. Later, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the threshold of death, he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. His father had given to him the cup of suffering, and even though Christ was fully aware that he had to drink it down to its very last dregs, yet he prayed, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In his humanity, he trembled at the horror of suffering and death. So if we think death is ugly and horrible, and it is, how much more ugly and appalling death must have been for the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. It only got worse. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was slapped, he was punched, he was spat on, he was disowned, he was betrayed, he was mocked, he was even crucified. He was totally forsaken by God. His God and Father pushed him away, he ejected him from his presence and from his favor.
And so our Savior cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gave up his spirit and he died. And then we ask for very good reason. Why, after all this, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? He had defeated eternal death after all by going through those three hours of darkness. Why wasn't that and all the previous suffering not sufficient for God's purposes of atonement? Our Savior, the only one with both human and divine natures, had to die. It was a must. He had to go through both eternal and temporal death. The Catechism says that satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way. And what it does is it appeals to God's very own attributes, his justice and his truth. These two attributes serve, so to speak, as the very last court of appeal. These are the two prosecutors who desire the death of Christ. God himself is saying, I cannot do this any other way. My justice and my truth demand it. We're familiar with that. Genesis 2, God already spoke this way in paradise. Genesis 2 Verse 17, he said to Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And you and I know how the story went. Adam and Eve disobeyed and as a result had to die. God's curse announced that they would return to the ground. For dust you are and to dust you will return. And the Apostle Paul echoes that when he says that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. In other words, the paycheck for our works of iniquity is death. Covenant disobedience leads to the covenant wrath of God activated. And since that paycheck could never fully be paid by the death of all who belong to the first Adam... Christ, as the last Adam, had to pay it. He put himself in our place, and he became sin for us. That was to fulfill God's threat. God makes no exception, even for his beloved son. That's how much our God loves justice and truth. We ignited his anger. He loved us and we forsook him. If God didn't become angry, there would be no justice or love in him. He wouldn't be true to himself. Well, by his death then, Christ satisfied God's justice and truth. He paid for our sins by his death. That was the only way. What a rich comfort of the gospel that another paid, had to fully pay for all our sins, so that now, both in life and in death, 
I belong to my faithful Savior. I believe, so I am free from eternal death. And yet the Catechism itself goes on to state a further implication, further fallout of the death of Christ for the believer. We look, we skip question answer 41 for the moment and look at 42. Since Christ has died for us, we ask, why do we still have to die? And that's a question that's not as odd as it first sounds. Have we not just confessed that Christ made satisfaction for our sins by his death? In other words, that Christ atoned for us, stood in our place, and did what we couldn't do? The debt's been paid, hasn't it? Why then still must we die? Can we not have it like Enoch or Elijah, where we bypass death? and ascend straight into heaven at the appointed time? Well, the answer that the catechism gives is again very comforting. Our death is not a payment for sin, but it puts an end to sin as, and is an entrance into eternal life. Christ's death has drastically transformed our death. The Lord, you might say now, has his grip on our death. Our death is no longer just an end of our physical life. No, with God's grip on us, it's now also an end to sin. Flesh and blood, Paul says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I think the older we become, the more we tend to see the weight of sin in our life. We see more and more how often we disobey the Lord. We also get caught up with the sins of others. We want an end to it. The mind of a renewed sinner recoils at the thought and horror of remaining in this world, sinful as it is, forever. Paul cried out at one point, Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, God will, because of Christ. Death puts an end to sin. And that means that the believer does not have to agonize over having to die. Death is an enemy, it's true. But... At death, we shall then be freed from hurt and guilt, yes, from sin forever. Does that not then give cause for acceptance of our last day? God is not going to pull a fast one on the believer when he dies. For our death is also an entrance into eternal life. Heavenly light shines on the death of believers. Death is coming, that's for sure, but it is not a prelude to eternal death. Christ's death changed all that. Our fiercest enemy now becomes but a servant who can only open the door for us to enter into our heavenly abode.
This is all part of the mighty comfort Christ has guaranteed for his church. Christ had to humble himself even unto death for us, for the believer. Christ, as the king over life and death, has gone to heaven, his father's house, to prepare a place for believers. John 14 verse 2 says, Those are words that are often read at the deathbed of God's children. Death severs, death puts an end to the believer's earthly, sinful, temporal struggle and opens the door to heavenly, eternal joy. So the Apostle John could hear it on the island of Patmos, a voice from heaven saying, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Christ's death brings so great a comfort to believers who are dying, who look forward to eternity with Christ. We come to consider in the second place why our Lord Jesus was buried. So our catechism raises in question 41, the next question relating to Christ's death. People throughout the ages have buried their dead. It was considered a curse not to be buried. God spared Christ that curse since it was no longer necessary after the curse of Golgotha. And yet, the burial of Christ was a further aspect, a further descending step in his humiliation. It was the final step. It was humiliating for him. He was still considered a criminal, and the laws of Moses prescribed that criminals executed on a cross should be buried the same day. And so this man, Jesus Christ, who came to be the king of kings on earth, was now laid in the dust of the earth. And that was in keeping with the curse that the Lord announced in Genesis 3 verse 19. That at death we will return to the ground, the dust of the earth. For dust we are, and to dust we will return. Christ also takes actively upon himself that part of our punishment. Put it this way, if he had come back to life just one hour after he died, he would have missed the part of God's punishment, of being in the grave, of going back to the dust. Brothers and sisters, question and answer 41 has disappointed a lot of people. Many say that the burial of Christ was not the first testimony or proof he had really died. That was already established on the cross, was it not? We read some pretty impressive and immediate consequences of that in Matthew 27. At the moment when Christ died, or cried out and gave up his spirit, what happened? A curtain of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. Christ was dead and now believers could enter into the very presence of God because sin was atoned for. Also, the whole earth shook and the rocks split apart. The old order of things had passed away. And the tombs burst open. 
and the bodies of many people who had died were raised to life. Death itself was conquered through the death of our Savior. He was dead, and now the Catechism says his burial testified to his death. The Catechism wants to remind us, brothers and sisters, that Christ was, is our mediator, our substitute to the fullest. All that happens to God's children also befell God's only begotten Son. Our life begins in the cradle and it ends in the grave. So it is with him. Every part of God's punishment, bigger or smaller, Christ has actively taken upon himself. To fulfill the curse of Genesis 3, Christ was buried in the heart of the earth. He died and he was buried for us. And so we see how rich and complete our salvation from death really is. His burial testifies to that. It proclaims that for us. Pilate released the body to Joseph of Arimathea, who had become a disciple of Jesus, we read, and who then came with Nicodemus to take the body away. They prepared his body for burial in accordance with the Jewish burial customs of the day. And they took him to a new, unused tomb, which Joseph owned not far away from the cross. We read in John 19, verse 41, They hastily lay him there before sunset, the beginning of the Sabbath. The gospel accounts tell us clearly, he was buried because he had died. And that's what answer 41 is all about. That's what humiliation was all about. He went through that for us. And then also his burial transforms the grave for us. Because of Christ's burial, our graves now serve as resting place for us until the final resurrection. Christ removed the sting of death. He also removed the darkness of the grave. That's why the scripture speaks of believers as falling asleep. Most of, if not all of us, have seen an open grave at some point and have seen the coffin descend into the earth. It hurts to say farewell. But glory upon glory, Christ has transformed that. Believers are put to rest in Christ to be raised up with him, to burst forth from the grave at the final and great day. And yet, the Catechism tells us that Christ's burial transforms not just our time in the grave, but also our life now already. Question 43 asks, what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross. It's talking about today. Catechism wants to uncover from Scripture benefits we receive from Christ's death today already. 
if death is an entry point into heaven, the gate into eternal life, well then we ought to first walk the narrow way to reach that gate. Answer 43 describes where that way runs. Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us. And what the Catechism is doing here is drawing extensively from Paul's teaching in Romans 6, where he says that you and I are joined by baptism to Christ's death and are raised to a new life through his resurrection. Death brings, we understand, a radical change in someone. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And Paul goes so far as to say in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Water washes away dirt, leaves it behind. So Christ, by his death, took our sins, our old nature, and he nailed it to the cross. It really is very moving language. And yet we wonder, how can Paul say that? We need only look at ourselves and say, my old nature seems to be dying a slow and agonizing death. Well, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul, and so also the Catechism, are correct. Through Christ's death, through his power, you can also even translate it in the Catechism, our old nature has been crucified, put to death, and buried and we have been raised up with Christ. Our life has to reflect that drastic change. Scripture calls us to live out of Christ's resurrection power. Yes, our weaknesses remain, but God's promise of a new life is, in Christ is stronger. In Christ, therefore, we have the power to carry out the obligations of the covenant of a new life in him. We live with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us. They no longer command what I shall do. Christ does. That's why Paul says in verse 11, so you must also Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, consider yourselves half dead to sin. No, there has been a clean break with the sinful nature. That's what death does after all. Our life has changed in Christ's power. This has taken place. And therefore we may and we must offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. <coughs> his death was an offering of atonement. <coughs> and
And now our life must be for him an offering of thankfulness. We cannot squander the life Christ has given in his power. (coughs) We must offer ourselves, our whole life, as a sacrifice of praise to him. And that takes us to our final point where we see why he descended into hell. With question and answer 44, (coughs) we come to one of the most controversial aspects of our Apostles' Creed. Have we not just stated, brothers and sisters, that with Christ's burial, he came to the bottom of his steps of humiliation, and he's now on the cusp of his state of exaltation? Why does the creed go on with the words about his descent into the realm of total forsakenness? Well, we don't have time this afternoon to go into all the details of the controversy, but a few words are appropriate. The descent to hell clause was added later to the creed, and various churches have understood it in different ways. Roman Catholics believe that Christ actually went to hell. His soul went there and remained as long as his body was in the tomb. While there, he supposedly liberated the souls of the saints of the Old Testament and brought them up to heaven. Anglicans believe he went to the place of the dead to announce the defeat of Satan. Now much of the controversy has centered around the interpretation of a passage like 1 Peter 3 verse 19 which says that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison (coughs) now the the reformers abandoned the Catholic and Anglican kind of interpretation of the Apostles Creed they retained the clause but they rejected the previous false interpretations of this article. And that was right. There is no biblical support or text saying that Christ literally descended into hell after his burial. It's quite the opposite, actually. Remember on the cross what he said to the criminal beside him, Today you will be with me in paradise. He also said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he added, it is finished. Suffering was over. Paradise, you might say, was just around the corner. Well, the catechism then wants to make clear that the article in the Apostles' Creed is a summary of Christ's suffering on the cross, particularly in those three hours of darkness, the Lord Jesus Christ went through unspeakable pain, anguish, terror, and agony. <clears throat> he endured, he lasted the, the eternal anguish and torment of hell. The most severe suffering you could possibly imagine. 
His cry to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was hell. Beloved, Christ did not descend into hell as a place. No. Satan and hell crawled their way up to him and dug their claws into him. On the cross, Christ was suspended. Heaven didn't want him. Earth didn't want him. And so hellish agony took over. Utter darkness, utter hopelessness took over for three hours. Eternal hours, Scripture really teaches. That's hell, forsaken by God. And yet, in his unsurpassable and incomprehensible mercy, he didn't shun death, even though he dreaded it. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Our Lord did not pray to be spared from death. He prayed that he would not be swallowed up by it as a sinner. He abhorred the thought of being forsaken by God. That's why he cried the way he did on the cross. What do you think of all that? Do you see how wonderful and magnificent is the love of Christ for us? Does that make you overflow with love for your Savior? If he had not been forsaken, if he had not descended into hell, his suffering and his death would have absolutely no meaning for us we ourselves would yet have to experience eternal hell. But that's unnecessary. Only the person who refuses to believe will experience that. He will enter into the torment of hell and yet never pass through it because it is eternal. But Christ passed through hell for the believer. That's why the catechism responds with such an absolutely beautiful answer. In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his descent into hell, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. There's such a wonderful comfort the only comfort for us in our greatest sorrows and temptations. This is our benefit. The Catechism purposefully mentions my greatest sorrows and temptations. We all experience sorrows and temptations, but there are moments in the life of a believer when it seems that the Lord is asking for too much. And we wonder, how are we going to come out of this? Well, brothers and sisters, then it's not for nothing 
that the Catechism continues, I may be assured and comforted that who? My Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who stood in your place. He is the sympathetic high priest who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses because he was tempted in every way we are, yet he never sinned. It's all about Christ and what he has done for the believer and for our faith. Here, our confession contrasts our misery with the comfort that Christ's descent to hell grants believers. Our confession takes us from hell to heaven. That's the benefit for the believer. Comfort in place of misery. Life instead of death. Citizenship in the kingdom of God rather than in the death camp of Satan's lair. Christ declared it is finished, both for himself and for us. Eternal hell is no longer a possibility for the one who loves and fears the Lord Jesus Christ. Through baptism, we are buried with Christ. Through faith, we are connected to Christ. That leads us forward in this life of sorrows and temptations. That turns our eyes to heaven, where our Lord now sits, preparing a place for those who are his. I fear no foe, with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still. If thou abide with me. This is our comfort for all times. Both in the fullness of life. And in the face of death. This gives us hope. Now and always. Amen.